Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. Don't you think it's strange to be compared to the notorious B.I.G.? And she says, why would I be surprised? We have a lot in common. This week's guest is Oscar-nominated and Emmy Award-winning director Julie Cohen. Julie is best known for a feature film she co-directed with Betsy West called RBG, about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which premiered at Sundance in 2018 and had an all-female crew. Julie, thank you so much for coming on Media Tribe. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Where are you at the moment, Julie? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn, New York, in New York City. Very good. Well, Julie, as you know, our audience will be very, very keen to learn how you came to be multi-Emmy winning Oscar-nominated director in your field. Can you take us through that journey? Um, Absolutely. I came to documentary filmmaking by being a journalist. I went to graduate school in journalism a long, long time ago, about 30 years ago. Um, And coming out of that, I worked in a number of areas of journalism from newspapers, radio, and television. I ultimately settled on TV because I thought that was just the most fun and enjoyable. And I worked in television news as a producer, writer, off-air correspondent. When I was in radio, I was actually on the air, but in in television, I was a behind-the-scenes person for a number of years in TV. I guess when you add it all up, it was about 15 years, I'd say. Um, both at something called court television, court TV, which no longer exists, but was quite a popular way to watch trials and legal coverage in the 90s and aughts. And then uh, for NBC News, where I was a producer writer for Dateline NBC, where I was a producer and writer of that extremely popular for many years, still on the air today, uh, primetime show that focuses on some hard news and breaking news stories, but really the the bread and butter of Dateline NBC is true crime stories. Um, And I produced and wrote many of them and long form. So mostly hour and two hour long stories about kind of fascinating criminal cases with a focus on murder. And after having done that for a number of years, I, I really enjoyed that job. I thought it was, you know, an engaging and interesting and challenging job putting together murder stories. And that was really where I feel like I gathered the storytelling skills necessary for making documentaries because the stories that I worked on on for that program were, were long form. They were out an hour long or two hours long. But it's at a certain point, focusing on murder kind of can be a downer. And I was quite eager to take the skills that I had developed and uh, put them into kind of telling some of the more of the stories that I wanted to tell. And that's what led me to leave the network in 2007 to start making documentaries. And I've made a whole bunch of them, mostly for television for many years, and then moving on. At a certain point, some of the films that I was making for public television, I started submitting to film festivals as festivals were becoming sort of more a popular thing to do. And starting between 10 years ago or so, it became an important sort of mark that your documentaries were worth watching to have them go to festivals. So I started um, submitting things to festivals and I started doing some documentaries that I gave a try in 2013, sort of working on 20, on a 2012 and 2013 to do a film that actually wasn't uh, pre-funded for PBS because I thought it had some commercial 
uh, potential. It was a story about a um, four generations of a Jewish family that run a smoked fish store in New York on the Lower East Side. It's I know it well. Russ and daughters. Yeah, Russ and daughters, indeed. <laughs> um, and the film is called The Sturgeon Queens. And I just had a. I thought felt rather than getting distribution sort of on the front end and having someone who was going to be sitting over my shoulder sort of saying ultimately what they wanted. I just wanted to do it completely independently and then take it out there into the market. And I I just had a sense that I would be able to recoup the money that I spent on it. That's pretty much exactly what happened. It's not like it's something that I made a fortune on. I didn't, but I was able to pay myself back for the money that my production company had spent to make the film. I really enjoyed that whole experience and did have that in a number of festivals. I'm going to jump in because, Julie, yeah. I, I believe that particular film, um, The Sturgeon Queens, everybody should go and check it out. That was in 60 film festivals all in all. I mean, that's extortionate. It was. And it actually also, even though it wasn't quite a full length film, it was about uh, 53 minutes. It was set to be um, for a public te- to, to make a public television film hour. And in fact, it did um, it did air on public television in the U.S. But actually a number of theatrical venues got in touch with me saying that they wanted to run it in their theaters. In some case, they were able to find similar themed short that they would run it with. And so it actually had week-long theatrical runs in a number of theaters, uh, both in the U.S. and, and Canada, which I hadn't really even thought of as, as a possibility. With The Sturgeon Queens, it's actually a question I really was keen to ask you. As you say, it's it's about a smoked fish shop called Russ and Daughters, which has been around for years and years and years. Um, and it struck me that there is a kind of feminist slant in this film as well, because, you know, back then nobody was calling their shop Russ and Daughters. It was absolutely and sons. So what kind of draw what does draw you towards um, making films where, you know, there is that message in it? You know, it's really, it's really not what draws me to films is not about the message. And it's not about the issue. It's really all about the characters. In the case of the Sturgeon Queens, the central characters and the stars of that film are two amazing sisters who at the time that the film came out were like, you know, 101 years old and 94 years old. They have since passed away. But these these two really incredible sisters who were the daughters of Russ and Daughters, they had worked in their father's smoked fish shop going back to around the late 1920s. And they were just these like raucous, incredible ladies. I actually had interviewed them initially for uh, I was commissioned by uh, public television to create a hour-long show called The Jews of New York, and they just sort of, the executives there just said, you can do whatever you want. We just need an hour on The Jews of New York. Do it very quickly. (laughs) Um, We had, I think, about eight weeks to do it. And so one of the stories I told was about the daughters of Russ and Daughters. That's extraordinary. I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Julie, that one of Russ and Daughters' chief customers is a very, 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 very famous lady who you went on to make a film about as well, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Is Is that true? Uh, in a sense, yes. Um, as you note, I did interview um, RBG, as she's known in uh, the States, for the Sturgeon Queens because she is a customer of the fish store. I had asked the fish store purveyors to give me a list because it's such a well-known store. They've got a lot of interesting, famous customers, and they had given me a list. And I 
reached out to Justice Ginsburg and was actually quite shocked to receive a letter back from her saying that she would be willing to give me a brief interview um, about her love of smoked fish. I interviewed her in the summer of 2013 for that project. And that was just before she really, you know, as the phrase goes, blew up on the internet as sort of like very unlikely rock star. And, you know, she's an extraordinary person. I was aware of everything that she had done in the 1970s, particularly as a lawyer to push forward women's equal rights under the Constitution in a series of cases that she took to the Supreme Court representing plaintiffs before, long before she was a justice. In twenty, the late 2013 and 2014, she was becoming quite famous in America for a series of stinging dissents that she that she wrote when the Supreme Court issues an opinion, uh, justices who aren't in the majority but and disagree with the opinion can issue their own non-controlling opinion, which is a, a dissenting opinion. And she wrote some dissents that were pretty strongly saying, like, look, the court is legally and in all ways going in the wrong direction on this case. And those dissents were really clung to, I would say, by a lot of people in America who didn't like the conservative direction that the court was going in. So she's becoming a superstar. She has this amazing backstory, which was not at the time very well known, even among her fans. I had interviewed her, the, her for the Sturgeon Queens. A friend of mine, also in the documentary world, Betsy West, had also interviewed her um, for a global project about the history of the women's rights movement called the Makers Project. And in light of all of the interest, all of the surprising growing interest in this diminutive, quiet, intellectual, 80-something Jewish grandmother, we knew her whole incredible backstory that a lot of her fans weren't familiar with. And um, I just said to my friends, like, you know, someone really ought to make a documentary about RBG and why shouldn't it be us? So Betsy West is your co-director on what is now a cultural phenomenon, I would say, about, as you say, this kind of steely and determined little woman. Um, and for anybody, you know, outside of America who doesn't know her, she's a crusader against gender discrimination, but she's also become this pop culture icon. And she, you know, on paper, when I say that, you know, she sounds extraordinary. But but as you mentioned, Julie, she is actually or seems to be quite a shy and reserved woman. Did you ever have any concerns that your, you know, your main protagonist was this, had this type of personality? Uh, yes, we that, that was certainly a major concern is like, how are you going to build an energetic, uh, watchable film around a woman who is reticent, uh, introverted, can be quite quiet, speaks slowly and thoughtfully and deliberately. You know, this is not a firebrand. This is not like the rabble-rousing character that you think of as being the star of a documentary. Um, and yet, you know, because Betsy and I had each interviewed her, we actually knew how much magnetism she had. We knew that even though she's quiet and that she leaves you waiting for her answer, that there's something very charismatic about her. And that like when she pauses before answering a question, everybody sort of leans in want, wanting to know. I mean, I've now been in a number of situations 
where there's people sitting around a table talking to her at a dinner or something. And like when someone is talking to Justice Ginsburg, everyone else is quiet. Just want you just want to know what she has to say. So we thought it would be, you know, we we knew it was going to be challenging, but we thought often the things that seem like the biggest potential problems and challenges are actually what's going to make your movie special. Well said. Julie, you know, you've had an illustrious career to say the least. Is there a moment that you could pinpoint as and, and say you're very proud of that, what you'd achieved in that moment? Each film, like when you finish an interview that feels like it's really meaningful and you know you're going to, you've gotten somebody to really open up and tell their story to you, I guess it's the moments of openness in the case of the Sturgeon Queen's those two amazing elderly sisters, I asked them to sing a song for me and they sang just a beautiful, beautiful rendition of Sunrise Sunset from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I did not know when I asked them to sing that, that they were going to be beautiful singers, but they were. And it was so, they couldn't quite remember the words, but it it was so moving. I like cried listening to them sing and I knew like, oh, this is going to, this is the end of the film. And so that's a moment where you just feel it's, it's mostly, I would say, in a situation where you're filming something and you feel like it's really beautiful and you can't wait to share it with the world and the audiences of the film. In the case of RBG, I would say it was the moment of capturing her exercising, which was just like such a delightful and also kind of moving thing to see. Wasn't it really? Yeah. It, re- it, it was. And again, for anybody who hasn't watched it, we, we see Justice Ginsburg was 84 at the time doing yeah. planks, doing proper press-ups, not girl press-ups, proper right. press-ups, we're wearing, wearing a jumper saying super diva. I mean, right. it was iconic. Right. And, you know, it was both cute and entertaining but also very telling about her character because the amount of determination she pours into getting the exercises right is kind of indicative of everything she's done in her whole life, in her career, in her fighting for her for her own career achievements, which was quite a battle for a woman in her generation, but also for the fighting for the rights of, of everyone else. I mean, it's just, she just like throws her whole little, I'm not going to say a weight, but there aren't that many pounds. I'm quite sure it's under a hundred. She throws all of she throws all of that weight into doing the absolute best and most she can at any moment. And it's moving to see. I want to talk about access because any, any documentary makers listening to this knows that access is so key. Talk to me about getting access to Justice Ginsburg because it didn't um, come, you didn't have it immediately. Yes, it was a long involved process, but like truthfully, getting access to the characters in a documentary is almost always a long process. I think there's a misunderstanding on among people that haven't made a film before that the way you're going to get access to someone and the way you're going to not only get an interview with them, but get verite footage that you need, you know, to be in our cases, to be going with her to the opera, to watching operas, to going with her with opera she performed at, to going to her home, to spending time with her and her grandchild. And with the, you know, the ultimate for us was going into the gym to film her workout routine. It's not like you just come out to someone and ask them all these things and then they say yes or no. That's just, I've never had that experience that I've made a lot of documentaries. Usually what people say is some form of maybe. And your job at that point becomes, how are we going to move this in the direction of happening? And the answer to that usually isn't just by persuasion. This isn't really a debate. You have to sort of 
show them something. And I think, you know, when we first approached Justice Ginsburg, um, which was a, a letter that we wrote to her, we were able to get her to read our letter, because as I said, we had each interviewed her before. So at least the people in her office knew who we were. And so we had a feeling she would get the letter. And in fact, she answered quite quickly. And her answer essentially said, not yet. You know, she just didn't feel like it was the time yet to be making a documentary about herself. Well, she was 82 at the time. And to us, it seemed like it would be a perfectly good time. But rather than just, you know, we're not going to push back and argue with her. And we also noted that she didn't say no. She just said not yet. But am I correct in thinking, Julie, she, you guys wrote to her in 2015 sometime and she wrote back to say, I'll do an interview in the summer of 2017. Uh, Our first letter to her, all she said was sort of not yet, like it's just not time. We then spent a couple months doing a whole bunch of research and we circled back to her with another letter saying, we understand you're not ready to be interviewed yet, but we're wondering if we could have an okay from you to start interviewing some other people because it takes a long time to make a documentary. And even if you're not ready, we'd love to start doing some work. And at that point, she said to us, well, I wouldn't be ready to be interviewed by you by for at least another two years. But if you still want to proceed, like here are some, you know, he, we had given her a list of people we were planning to talk to. And she mentioned some people that weren't on our list that we could talk to. And, you know, we realized it was a, we were taking a chance at that point. Like when someone says they're going to do something in two years, that's kind of a long way away. But we decided that the way to make this happen, if it was going to happen, was just to move forward with it. And in fact, at some point in production, because she gradually let us start filming more stuff with her, although she wasn't sitting down with the interview yet. And it became clear at a certain point that she was kind of cooperating with the project, even if she wasn't doing the the interview. So at, at a certain point, about a year after that, we sort of asked if we could maybe set the interview for two or three months later, because we thought we're getting pretty And She wrote back like, what are you talking about? I said, at least I said I wasn't going to talk to you to the summer of 2017. This was like in maybe the, this was around September of 2016. So we're like, okay, never mind. So, um, and, and in fact, we did the, finally, the sit down interview was basically two years to the day. So she's so. she's a lady of her word. And Julie, I mean, how was it then getting funding for such a, a big project when, you know, your key character has told you it's a maybe in two years? Yes, it was hard. <laughs> um, and that's why the way we did it was in stages. We didn't go out asking a funder, like fund our full documentary, because like which we may or may not have because our main character hasn't really <laughs> agreed to this yet. What we did was we said, we've got this idea. Remember, we, we actually know this one. We've interviewed her before. Look at the interviews we've done. You can see that there's, and she's told us, it, se- it seems to us from our communications with her that she said, if there's going to be a documentary about her, it's going to be a- our documentary. So we want to start filming some of the things that surround this because we think that's the way to make this happen. We don't want to push her anymore about her participation. She's going to develop more of an interest in this when she sees that we're really serious about doing it. So we went to CNN Films, who did ultimately become our producing project on the on the whole project, and said, could you give us a small amount of funds for three days of shooting, to do a little bit of research for three days of shooting, for a few days of editing, to edit some of that. And, and then you can you, you can reassess at this at that point, because we think that's how, that, then we'll go back and see where we stand. And that's exactly what happened. They gave us, I mean, I'm not going to say amounts, but they gave us what ended up being maybe like 5% of our budget at that time to, uh, to start shooting and start working. So we were like, okay, that's great. And then we spent 
you know, just basically a couple months setting, researching, doing those interviews, putting together some highlights of them. And then at a certain point, we, we interviewed, we actually interviewed five people in those three days. So we made a fair amount of progress. Some of them were people that the justice knew well. So we had a sense that they would get back to her with what we were hoping were favorable reports that we were serious and we took the project seriously. And at that point, in the end of the process, when CNN was kind of considering whether to keep going, we sort of sent the justice's office a note and said, what, you know, just let the, you know, we just want to keep you posted on where we stand with this project that we're hoping to interview her for in the future. And her assistant wrote us back an email at this point saying, um, here is a series of things that justice will be doing over the next year or so that she thought might make interesting filming opportunities. I wanted to ask you, um, after filming with Justice Ginsburg for, I mean, it took three years, I think, in total, is there a, do, do you and Betsy ever call her Ruth? No, absolutely not. It's a good question. Many people have asked us that. And in fact, sometimes when executives and stuff were talking to us, like the people at the distributors and that kind of thing, you know, there's a almost like a Hollywood thing of like calling famous people by their first name. Sometimes like if someone's talking about Spielberg, they'll be like, Steven wants to do this. And like, someone would say like, well, can you see if Ruth can like come to that premiere? And we would be like, do not like, do not call her Ruth. Like even to, to like, and they weren't saying it in any public forum. They were just saying it in a, in a meeting, but like we call, no, we call her justice. We do not call her Ruth. I'm not saying that her closest friends don't call her Ruth. She has certainly her close friends do call her Ruth. And so, several of the people that we interview her uh, have earned the right. But no, she's she's way too intimidating to call Ruth. That's brilliant. Well, another scene that we haven't spoken about is when, you know, she talks about being referred to as the notorious or BG. I mean, that is just so magical. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Julie? Yes. Well, you know, the uh, young people who have made RBG a star on the internet started referring to her as the notorious RBG. Uh, young law student at NYU Law School who was really loving her descent started a uh, Tumblr page that she called Notorious RBG, named, of course, or maybe not, of course, I don't know quite who, what audience I'm talking to, but named after the noted East Coast uh, rapper, uh, the Notorious B.I.G., now, now sadly uh, passed away. But um, so, yeah, so people started calling her Notorious RBG, just like as a, you know, because it's like a funny joke. There's like this, obviously, this huge contrast between the two people. Well, the Great thing about that is Justice Ginsburg gets that joke and she loves that joke. And uh, what she likes to say, she, she, you know, she'll say, people ask me, like, don't you think it's strange to be compared to the notorious B.I.G.? And she says, why would I be surprised? We have a lot in common. And like everyone laughs, it's like, what are they, what's she talking about? And then her next line is, we were both born and bred in Brooklyn, New York. Now, again, Brooklyn uh, the borough, you know, just outside of Manhattan is a point of pride for those who were raised, uh, you know, for those who were raised here. And, uh, I'm sh and in fact, East Coast rappers who came from Brooklyn are, in fact, quite proud of being Brooklynites, uh, just like Justice Ginsburg, who grew up in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn in the 30s, 40s, 50s is extremely is very much a proud Brooklynite. My mom's from Brooklyn also, so I I complete I completely and from Flatbush and I completely relate to the Brooklyn pride and I my husband and I live in Brooklyn, so 
Rightly so. Yes. Well, yeah, we 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 started off in Brooklyn, actually, Julie, in Bushwick, uh, which we loved, absolutely loved, but we weren't cool enough to stay around. And Julie, I mean, one thing that really stood out for me personally, um, you know, as a woman working in our industry, um, was the fact that you and Betsy had an all-female crew. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah, you know, it. we just sort of, it wasn't something we gave a whole lot of thought to. At the beginning, it just seemed like a natural decision to make. I mean, there's been a lot of complaints in terms of women in behind-the-camera roles, you know, getting to be represented and getting to bring their skills and their voices to a project. And it seemed like for a project like this, where the film was going to be about a woman... Um, for both women and men, but but like really in some deep way, we felt like for for women and on a person who spent her whole life fighting for the rights of women, like, wouldn't it kind of seem like it would make sense to have a team of women in all the leadership roles to bring it to to the public? And there was some concern, like people would say like, oh my God, we all got to ask this in Q and A's all the time. Like, how did you, like, wasn't it like so hard to find like to get a team of women to and we were like no it wasn't hard it it what it it was done with like intention i mean the the, the hardest role to fill was that of cinema, cinematographer because special cinematographers is a really male dominated field that's really m- much less true of most of the other positions but the way we did it was just we worked on doing it. We created a spreadsheet. We called around everyone we knew. We weren't working. The cinematographer wasn't someone we had worked with before. We called everyone we knew and like, who are the great women documentary cinematographers, you know, and then we would look at their reels. And then we spoke to a bunch of them. And uh, same thing with editors, our brilliant editor, Carla Gutierrez, neither of us had, neither of us knew her before. We just asked around, like, who are the great women editors? I mean, truthfully, in documentary editing, there's lots of women who have that job. I would say it's close to that I'd say it's close to 50 50 in that uh in that position so it's not like we didn't know of some but we just thought we'd ask around to everyone for their kind of their favorite woman and uh we certainly got recommendations for Carla and then when we spoke with her and met her and saw some of her previous work and just we just felt like it was a really really good fit and it turned out to be because, in fact, where she's in the midst of editing one of our next films uh, as well. Oh, that's really good to hear. I mean, there are so many beautiful moments captured in the film. But let, let me move on to my next question, Julie. Is there a moment in your career that you would step back and say that was rather bonkers that you could you could tell us about? Um, so I was attempting to get an interview. This was when I was at NBC with an inmate in a woman's prison, uh, a woman named Mary Kay Letourneau, who became quite famous in America for having started when she was a teacher, an extremely troubling uh, relationship, or extremely troubling sexual relationship with um, one of her students, a sixth grader. The incredibly odd thing about this uh, this pair is that they ended up getting, they had two children. They ended up, after she got out of prison, they ended up getting married. Um, it was a story that I covered over quite a period of time. And I guess, you know, I'd written her a number of letters and she called me on the phone <laughs> to talk to me in a crazy sort of sing-songy voice. 
And, you know, we didn't pay people for interviews. That's not, um, it's not an ethical thing to do in the network news world. Don't do it in documentaries either. And she said, you know, I'll do an interview with you, but you'd have to buy a guitar for my roommate, my cellmate. Like, so that was a strange moment. But in the end, and I can't remember how things transpired. No, we didn't buy her anything. In the end, she actually did call us up again and allowed us to do an interview. And when she got out of prison and, and married the, by this point, young man who she had been incarcerated for her earlier relationship with, they sat down together with us and gave us uh, their first interview as a married couple. So, Oh, that's hilarious. Not surprising. I mean, you've just had the most wonderful career, Julie, and um, you are really an inspiration to any female filmmakers listening into this because it's a bloody hard leap from news into documentaries and especially into feature documentaries that take a long, long time to make. Um, Julie, thank you so much uh, for coming on today. We're, we're, we're so, so grateful. It was great to be here. If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 